Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In this episode, we'll be chatting about recent events in our own lives as three London-based freelancers. I'm Davina and I play the cello. I'm Olivia and I play the harp. And I'm Imogen and I play the trumpet. This episode marks the end of our first series. It's our season finale, so we've decided to do things a little differently. Today, our special guest is here with us and we'll join in with our panel chat. So we're very pleased to welcome Chris Rose, celebrated composer and sound wizard who composed the very jingle that you hear in this podcast. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So, Chris, we're going to start with you today. What have you been up to besides mastering our recent episodes? (laughs) Well, you've caught me. I've had quite a kind of quite a light-hearted fun month um, in terms of what stuff I've been seeing. So I went to see Candide by Bernstein, which is really cool. It was Opera Project, put it on at West Green Opera House. And yeah, it was just so so much fun. I, I did it when I was um, at university, Manchester University. I was I was in the chorus for it. So it kind of brought um, brought back the uh, brought back the memories from that. And yeah, weirdly, when we were at university, the main part in Candide was played by Frathi who the other night was in On the Town. Um, oh, on the, the proms, yeah. He was one of the main parts in that. So, yeah, kind of Bernstein Musical Theatre Month, which is pretty cool. Of course. Um, I just read the plot of Candide yesterday, actually, because I happened to have an old programme lying around, mm-hmm. and it is so bizarre. <laughs> the number crazy, of people yeah. who are related to each other and then get <laughs> killed and then become resurrected spoilers um but it's yeah it was just oh, wow. a bit yeah. interesting to follow i, I played the overture <laughs> once and absolutely loved it but i don't actually know any of the other music yeah i mean he just he just takes such a bizarre storyline like it almost doesn't matter the plot is not the thing really when you're watching it it's so witty what he does with it and and yeah the, the orchestration of it is brilliant as well but... like a lot of operas i suppose <laughs> it's true <laughs> and what have you been working on uh, well, I have been, I've just come to the end of a really fantastic project about uh, the Spitfire, so a film score for a feature documentary about the Spitfire. Um, is that all kind of World War One centenary stuff, is that? Yeah, exactly, so um, it's uh, the big RAF anniversary this year, they tried to tie, tie the release in with that, but it was kind of three years in the making, off and on, composing the music for it, so... We finally got to record earlier this year, and then it's kind of been... Well, it wasn't red carpet, it was a blue carpet <laughs> premiere uh, with Carol Vorderman. Oh, wow. The blue carpet. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Why was it blue? Um, good question. I was wondering if it was some kind of RAF thing, maybe. Oh, yeah. Red is all red, their red and blue. blue. Oh, yeah. But, um, <laughs> blue carpet sounds a bit sad. <laughs> well, it is a sure, sad. It's still very glamorous. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was really exciting to see that kind of finishing, and then um, the I've just found out the RAF band they want to perform it as a suite. They want to perform oh. the music from it, so so that could be it's exciting. Fantastic, um, yeah, yeah. Also, um, be working on lots of pitches for various things, and sort of a, a bit of advertising as well, which is a bit of a new field for me, but quite an exciting, completely different, really, the skills that you need for it. And it's such quick, it's a really quick turnaround. And you kind of have to just think really analytically about it and detach yourself from the music and 
deal with loads of different feedback that you get from the clients. And So in terms of pitching, you don't mean you're pitching your music to people. What do you mean? So there's a couple of couple of projects that have come up where they're looking for a composer. And so I have to sort of, of often they'll ask you to uh, either send things you've done already. Oh, it is your stuff. Um, well, some, sometimes uh, the thing I'm doing this week is writing. Often they'll say write a sort of three to five minute uh, suite of, of themes, if you like, to to kind of to get you the job, basically. Um, and it's really, it's it's a really hard thing to kind of, because they send you, they often send you temp music. They send you something that they already kind of tried, and that they like. But so they kind of want you to do something. They they they're pushing you down a certain direction. But then often it's better to sort of trust your own instincts because they've already got the temp music. They've got something that they know they know works. So they don't want you to just copy it. So it's kind of about not second guessing them too much and just doing, you know, throwing caution to the wind and kind of doing what you. Yeah, it would be they best want, with it. They want to see what you can bring, your sort of unique spark. Yeah, I think so. Because when a, they don't often, fil- films more and more will just use library music. So just the fact that, they have, um, that they're looking for a composer, I think, means they want something slightly different. What is library music, just in case people don't know? Sure. Um, so library music is basically music that you can buy off the shelf. And it's increasingly used in, in TV um, and film music where it's very easy to edit, it's very easy to work with, so it's kind of, um, it's all in, in four bar phrases, very easy, loopable, and they'll have a few different versions of it with different endings and that kind of, so it's kind of, I guess it's like the kind of Ikea furniture of... <laughs> Wet pack composition. <laughs> I was thinking more like Getty Images or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, buy, you buy the right... Exactly, stock photos, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess. So it, music that someone's composed but not for anything in particular. Exactly. So they'll they'll be composing it with a brief of there'll be some kind of album title in mind, um, and so they they will have an idea of it could fit with like with this type of film or this type of. But it's it's often used in loads of different different yeah. ways. So can you earn quite a lot of money from doing that if if loads of people can buy it and you get a lot I of think rights? So, I think so. Yeah, I think that for a lot of film and TV composers, that is their that is their. Um, bread and butter, that, that's what the uh, majority of their income comes from. And they often, because they get, they'll get their statements every quarter, and you'll see it's been used around the world in various different, you know, completely different settings, which kind of shows how music can be for both very specific for something, but also really um, in a multi-purpose. Kind of, it can be used for in loads of different situations. Is that the kind of thing where they have, like, specific titles, like... Ambient, peaceful mood, and then you know people see that <laughs> joyful. Kind of, exactly, they they see that description. They're like, oh, I can use this for my ad for air freshener or something. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. But it's a really specific skill because you have to stay. Each track has to stay within one. It has to be interesting enough. You know, it has to do something, but it can't go away from its original purpose. It's got to stay in one place, but still kind of keep the interest. Just talking about adverts, can you tell the others about the um, was it a fifteen page brief you got once for a particular <laughs> advert? Fifteen pages. <laughs> it seems that the shorter the thing you're composing for, the the, oh, um, no. the, the more feedback and the more thought goes in <laughs> goes into it. Um, and yeah, as I said, it's quite a new thing for me. But it's um, 
in my experience, the amount of, because there's so many people involved in, in adverts and they're sort of quite high risk things, I suppose, yeah, there's a huge amount of uh, feedback and, and briefing that goes into it. There's composers that specialize in sound branding. So it's almost sound, it's a mixture of sound design and composition for sort of a one to two second. I think Audi has a certain sound when you open the door, for example. <laughs> Or like, or like in, Intel Pentium processor, the, the or Coca Cola, exactly. Yeah, ah, <laughs> I know that. Sponsored by. Um, <laughs> there's all, the, each brand will have its own kind of sound logo, and one advert that I was pitching for, you had to work it in. It wasn't just at the end of the advert. You had to sort of weave in this leitmotif into your, whatever composition you were doing, and so there's there's 15 pages of. Um, of notes about it and sort of you can imagine them pitching it to a like to instructions the, to the board for you instructions for the sound designer and the composer <laughs> and sort of there's a section on instrumentation for example where you might want to use drums to add rhythm texture and color um, the low pitched tone of the bass can cover a wide range of musical roles uh, the french horn is a natural instrument that guarantees um a unique touch of freedom. Uh, oh, the piano. Oh is, my God. Who's and writing so, this? I don't. I, I want to be the person who gets paid to write that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's the, that. I guess that's the thing. It's um, creative. <laughs> it's a, you have to. It's it's a it's a border, isn't it, between the musical world and the kind of corporate world, um, and and you have to find a way of, I suppose. In business, there it's always about pitching ideas and presenting things. Isn't it? So, mm. the more content you have ri- written down, it's like they're earning, um, earning it by writing more stuff down. Maybe, yeah. but yeah, um, well, good fun. We're going to ask you some more <laughs> questions about how you go about um, getting your work and um, and how the process um, evolves. Yes, yeah. Olivia, you've been away recently, haven't you? Tell us about that. Yes, I went to Poland for another harpist wedding and then I was in Warsaw over my birthday actually and um, my boyfriend and I found a concert to go to um, in the evening on my birthday and I just wanted to tell you about it. We just, I was googling concerts and there were so many options and there was a festival going on at the time called Chopin and His Europe. And the concert we went to was a 10pm chamber concert and it was actually on the stage of the Polish National Opera House. So when we went in, we were kind of led round sort of side door. And then I thought maybe it was just a rehearsal space to start with, but it took me a while to work out that on one of the sides, there was three sides the audience were sitting around the stage, that one side had the huge curtain behind oh. so that makes sense it was actually on the stage yeah. um it was just a really cool use of the opera stage <laughs> i think probably in london the opera house is so busy that they'll never have a chance to do a chamber music concert on the stage but it just felt it felt really different and cool and um the concert i went to see the musicians were fantastic it was good on kramer on violin mm-hmm. Giedra Divano Skater on cello and Juliana Abdiva on piano and they were playing music by Weinberg, Chopin and Shostakovich and um, Juliana Abdiva absolutely stole the show by playing um, Shostakovich piano sonata 
um, Opus 12 number one. And I was just looking on her website and she's actually playing Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with the Halle and CBSO this autumn. Um, so I'd recommend checking that out. Um, I'll put a link to those concerts in our show notes. And I just want to say that Warsaw was so obviously such a musical city, even the level of the buskers was phenomenal. I saw an amazing marimba player on the street, two accordionists who were so good, and there were also just countless signs advertising Chopin recitals every evening in various churches. And um, I was thinking about why um, Poland is such a musical city, and um, I read up a bit about Paderewski, the um, Polish composer, and he was a pianist and composer, and then went on to become the Prime Minister of Poland, and he played an important role in meeting with President Woodrow Wilson, obtaining the explicit inclusion of independent Poland um, in Wilson's peace terms in 1918. And yeah, he was a very important person in Poland's history. So I was thinking maybe that's why um, Polish people obviously place such importance on classical music. It's obviously like a really strong arts advocate. Yeah. And if it's in the government, I sometimes think about this when I'm teaching and you teach young children and Obviously, not all of them are going to become professional musicians, but you also have to think, how is music going to positively play in their lives in the future? Like, you know, you never know which little kid who's awful at grade two cello might become the next massive arts philanthropist or something, or they might be the new generation of audiences that we play to in the future. So, um, And it actually reminded me of um, the interview that I did with John Gilhooly a couple of episodes mm-hmm. ago um, when we talked about whether he could envisage um, a UK politician being seen at a classical concert. Oh, and he said, right. not until the arts job, culture secretary yeah. role, uh, was viewed as more than just a place to park your car before the bigger roles. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it reminded me of that. And also he mentioned in that interview that we actually edited out um, the importance of Polish composers and how many um, good Polish composers there are living today. Um, so if you're going to Poland uh, next month, they have the 61st Contemporary Music Festival in September. So um, I'd check that out. Imogen, what have you been up to? A few days ago, I went to watch a prom, another prom, the CBSO prom, and it was a wonderful evening of French music. So we had some Debussy. Pretty, oh no, I can't say this. You said it you really said well. It really well. Wow. Yeah. Can you please go for it, Olivia? By Debussy, we had Prelude à la Prémédie d'Enfant. Oh, thank well you. And Nocturnes. I can do that one. <laughs> <laughs> we also had Ravel's Bolero, which is a brilliant piece for anyone, especially for anyone who's new to classical music, because it's got this great tune which you can kind of follow around the orchestra so each instrument each kind of section takes on this tune as a soloist from each section um and it's just really fun it builds up to this epic conclusion and there's a snare drum um that plays throughout the entire piece how long is it i think it's like 15 minutes or something like depends how slow you do it but um and they share it out between two sometimes they do but in this one it was just this lone guy yeah Yeah. sometimes adrian spillett i think it's his name he was the first percussion winner of the bbc young musician 
fun fact. I, um, I went to a performance yeah. of Bolero once where they had the snare drum player in the middle of the orchestra. Yeah, exactly. They brought him down, that's no it. Pressure. Spotlight. <laughs> yeah. And it's also got a really scary trombone solo, right? It was, that Rupert was amazing. <laughs> Rupert was, he was, my boyfriend was actually playing in the concert, but not that solo. Oh, but okay. I was sitting next to the wife of the trombone player and I, we were just like, we couldn't breathe during that <laughs> solo. <laughs> And then he did it so brilliantly that we all went, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and he got a shout out on the radio. So oh, well nice. done, Matthew Knight. Um, so I really enjoyed that concert. But the most interesting piece for me, actually, of the night was by French composer Lily Boulanger. It was Psalm 130. Um, the translation of the title is From the Depths of the Abyss. And Lily Boulanger is actually a really interesting composer. She died aged 24. So young from tuberculosis but she composed some great music in her very short lifetime and she was the first woman to ever win that Prix de Rome which I guess is a big prize um which the is in 19- that's it in 1913 for composition so I wondered Chris whether you'd whether you kind of knew much about her or about that prize um because she actually competed the year before I think as a singer but she collapsed during the performance from illness <gasps> so she was had to you know not take part and she, she returned the next year and then won the composition wow. prize so yeah obviously have you been influenced by her at all or do you know much about by it's not a quiz <laughs> not a I mean, test I've heard Nadia Boulanger yeah was her sister that's okay. okay so she was she was um, an amazing composer and teacher of, of so many dif- different composers and you, it always amazes me how many people so was, I think Stravinsky but then also, um, Quincy Jones. No way! So it's kind of, it all linked back to her. Yeah, she was obviously really... Because wow. um, she lived a lot longer than Lily. I think she died right. in 1976 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was, just, it was just a brilliant piece. And it was for um, full orchestra and um, alto soloist and also a tenor soloist and organ, choir. Just a full-scale piece. And it got some great reviews. So, um, yeah, I would recommend that. Psalm 130. Also, last week, I went to a hen party on a Monday, which I decided was true <laughs> Musicians Weekend style. Um, it was obviously, a, it was a very small hen party and there were only really musicians there. Um, but just so nice that we could actually do that. And we were all just kind of laughing about the fact that we were doing it. And we kind of went for a little walk midway through the hen party, just kind of around the streets, wearing some, you know, bridal party <laughs> gla- glasses and sashes. And we just got some very weird looks from people. Because um, they just thought, what are they doing on a Monday on afternoon? A Monday. I got married on a Monday. Did you? Yeah, because... Because you can, as a musician. Yeah. All your friends will be <laughs> free. Your friends can come. Yeah. Even on Saturday, they will be working. Davina, how about you? What have you been up to? Uh, well, it's still summer, but I feel like the summer's winding down now. Um, so I will probably have to start my practicing soon. <laughs> but in lieu of practicing, I've been attending some lovely concerts. And um, last week, in particular, um, I went to a couple concerts that incorporated. Um, multimedia as well as um, live orchestral performance. So I went to Prom 47, which someone in some podcast recommended to me. Thank you, Olivia. Mm. (laughs) Um, So Olivia mentioned this in the last podcast. So I went to see the BBC Symphony Orchestra um, perform Phil Venables' new violin concerto. Venables plays Bartok, it's the title. Um, And it tells the story of Phil's journey of learning the violin and approaching Bartok's Romanian dancers. And his teacher's teacher, his name is Rudolf Botter, his journey as a refugee from Hungary. So they played a recording of narrative from Phil himself. 
Um, so he was talking about how he'd found these um, recordings of him playing and he didn't know what they were. So he put on Twitter a shout out, does anyone know what this piece is that I'm playing? And the soloist, um, Pekka Kursisto, was actually playing and had actually incorporated the Romanian dancers into the concerto. So he was the soloist. So then he sought to find out more about the journey Botta took to flee Hungary with his violin. And it was pretty full on. So there was an audio recording of the narrative as well as live orchestral. So during the piece there was yeah. speech coming yeah. from. Oh wow. And I kind of I kind of wish I could see it again actually because from where I was in the gallery I couldn't really hear everything in the recording because a lot of the music was so loud, but you could definitely tell that 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 Venables had managed to kind of incorporate um, his composition to what he was saying okay. in the recording, if that makes sense. Um, so that was, it was quite interesting. And then the next day, I, I just think that there seems to be some kind of trend of multimedia performance going on because I went to the Tete Tete Opera Festival and the performance I went to was called Love Me to Death, um, composed by Tom Randall, who was also conducting and it explored the story of the last woman to be hanged in Britain in 1955 a woman called Ruth Ellis and it was for the crime of killing her lover David Blakely he was a racing driver um, and again they used multimedia by interspersing bits of the opera with a film of an actress playing Ellis's daughter and she was narrating the story from her mother's point of view so it followed her abusive relationship with Blakely so she you know, she suffered a lot of dom domestic abuse. She had a miscarriage due to a punch in the stomach oh. from Blakely. Um, and then that resulted in his murder. And then, following a really swift trial, she was executed. The case that influenced the abolition of capital punishment in the UK. It was very controversial, as the law was described as medieval savagery. Many people thought she didn't receive a fair trial. The claim of a crime of passion was ignored, as well as her abusive relationship history with Blakely. Because 1955, that actually just doesn't feel like that long ago. No. Hanging. That's yeah, exactly. weird, isn't it? Well, apparently it was still legal to execute someone by guillotine in France in 1977. That was the year Star Wars came out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's horrific. Oh it's all gone a bit dark. Yeah. Sorry. So it was, it was quite a sobering opera to go to. But I think it... It worked really well, so because it was set kind of in the 50s, the composition had a lot of kind of swing style 50s music, um, but also it was just very, um, like, quite distressing mm. as well. I came out of there just being like, oh, it was an, only an hour long, the whole opera. Oh. But, yeah, it felt quite intense after that. Oh. I was about to say, I actually listened to the American, this American Life Feather Thief episode, oh. and I loved it, the one you mentioned oh. last week. Totally engrossed. The way they tell it is really good. Yeah. So I recommend looking at that story. Yes, we mentioned that last week about the uh, the real-life Papageno <laughs> who um, stole a million dollars worth of rare bird skins. And um, we have found out since recording the last episode that he actually has a full-time job at a very well-known um, orchestra um, Where? in Europe. That is what I'll say. <laughs> do your own research. So, yeah, but you do your own research. Look, at, look up that podcast and read the book because I'm reading the book and loving it. So, so it, yeah, extremely good research has gone into that. That's quite incredible. Talking about history being seeming sort of so close, um, there was a program I caught, I think it was on Radio 3 or 4, um, about Bernstein, um, just caught the end of it. But it was about, I'd, I'd never realised he was... Um, 
he was involved in the whole McCarthyism thing, um, where they were. So he was on the list on the FBI's watch list of comp- of um, communists, oh, and yeah. sort of had to, and just just from what he was writing, and he had to produce a public statement saying, "I have never been a communist. I never <laughs> intend to." And it's just, it's amazing that I'd, I'd never kind of even thought that composers. Time particularly in America, you just think it's sort of a free... Yeah, you kind of think about Shostakovich and 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 all the Russians, but you forget that it was going on in... But then I suppose then was during the Cold War, wasn't it? So any kind Mm. of uh, tendencies towards one side would be investigated. Yeah. Crazy. Um, And what else have I been doing with the rest of my summer break? I have been playing a lot of Nintendo. I decided to buy a Nintendo Switch. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of a cross between a handheld gaming device and also a console that you can plug into your TV. It is so much fun. Is that like an old school one? No, it like, it's the oh, new one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I've been playing a lot of Mario Kart because you can play online with your friends. Um, not a huge gamer, but all of a sudden I'm really obsessed with Mario Kart. Um, and the thing that I've been thinking about is um, video game music in particular. Um, because I've had a lot of it in my head and the style of it has to be like, you know, so in keeping with the characters of the game or whatever um, and very cyclical, you know, there's no sort of distinct end to a particular tune that seems to go around and round and round forever and ever until you finish the level. Um, But also the fact that video game music seems to be rising in prominence these days. Uh, for example, Jessica Curry has a video game music show on Classic FM. And like, for example, I played in a video game music concert in March this year in the Barbican and then also up in Leeds with the Army of Generals Orchestra. And it just seems to generate a completely new audience from what we're used to. So a lot of you know young gamers and mm. people that maybe wouldn't necessarily go to a concert and they hear the Mario theme, you know, played on the bass clarinet, and everyone just cheers. Yeah. And, yeah, all of a sudden, it's um, it's this new kind of thing. So I was wondering, um, Chris, I, I wanted to know if you had any opinion on video game music, if you've ever composed any, or what's your favourite music from video games sure. perhaps you've played in the past? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a field that's on the rise. And I think what you're saying about the, the whole concert... Thing. It's it's in a way, it gives you a bigger scope now with with video games to to write in a kind of a style like a film music that was maybe 30, 40 years ago. The kind of more what we think of as traditional film music, mm. big orchestral uh, textures and like and the budgets are so huge that they can afford a, a proper orchestra and and so I think it does translate really well to to the concert hall for that and also similarly to the to library music it's it's the skill of like you're saying having something which can loop but also you have to build it in layers so if if one character goes to a particular part of the room you have to sort of add another layer that you know is going to fit over the top of whatever yeah. you've got and and particular characters have particular light motifs as well like mm-hmm. in an opera and also the fact that so many games are set in loads of different um, places it really has you really have to showcase your versatility I suppose as yeah. a composer yeah sure and it's I mean I've, I haven't um, composed video game music but it, it would be one of the things I love about film music is the kind of the challenge of um, fitting within a world your music has to fit within a certain visual world but then you have to do something original with that so you're kind of 
you know, being being part of a big team, a big overall picture like that. But I think that's even more so in, in video game music. But maybe there's more chance in video games to have a bit more personal expression as well, because you're there's no dialogue mm. or, or little, little dialogue, is there? And you're kind of, and you have a long time. You have, it depends how quickly you complete your level, but uh, <laughs> you, you have like a big canvas to work with. <laughs> hours and hours <laughs> of frustration. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, certainly it's moved on a lot since from the kind of Mario Kart, mm. um, from that kind of 8-bit sound. It's, it's now people expect a, a movie soundtrack. One of my piano students, actually, it used to be, you know, um, the kind of like 11, 12-year-old boy would come in and, and want to learn John Williams or want to, like, want to learn a piece of film music. Now they say, oh, there's this great piece from Battlefield 2. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Flight of the Pigeon, I think it was called. Like, it's this beautiful beat, like piano piece. Um, I find which... that with my students as well. I have to keep up when they say, "I want to play this uh, this thing from some game," and I'm like, "I have to find out what it is first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to you next yeah. week on that one. <laughs> have you two ever played in any video game concerts? I have, but I'm so disinterested in video games. I can't even remember the name of the game. Sorry. No, I, I have no interest in it. I used to play GameCube when I was growing up. <laughs> Nintendo GameCube. Yeah, Super, but, Super Monkey Ball, all those kind of things. <laughs> sounds great. But I think it's really good for us, or good for classical music, that people are writing such mm. big scores and people are obviously taking interest in the music exactly. after the game. In so, the same way that good. we perform, say, incidental music from a play that is, has been long forgotten, you know, maybe in future we'll be playing this great game music, but people won't be playing the game anymore necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know it already feels like we've started the interview, Chris, because you are here as our guest panellist, but it wouldn't be fair not to give you an introduction to your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, just going to start by saying that Chris is a composer and pianist. He is represented by SMA Talent and is part of the BAFTA crew for this year. Chris's music has been described as brilliantly unnerving, poignant and highly energetic. His recent projects include the feature documentary Spitfire, Murder in Italy, a four-part series for Sky and BBC Storyville, and a documentary for Pulse Films that was shown on BBC Two earlier this year about a revolutionary HIV drug. Chris is active as an arranger and conductor, and he recently worked on a campaign for Cancer Research UK when he was asked to arrange Vivaldi's Spring for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra with a third of the notes missing. And he also founded and conducts Anima, an eight-piece ensemble performing live music with short films. Okay, to start, will you please explain the... Vivaldi, a third of the notes missing thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was a fun, fun project. It was for a branding agency who were putting together an advert. They wanted to show how can- cancer research gets a third of its donations from legacy gifts in people's wills. And so they came up with this idea of uh, what would it be like if a third of something was missing. So it was a really interesting challenge of how to remove a third, whether I should just remove, go through quite mathematically, remove a third of the actual, of the notes, or whether to do it kind of horizontally or vertically, you know, whether, yeah, whether to just do it blindly or to do it so it still sounds musical. And in the end, I I went for that approach because it still had to, it's this balance of getting the point across, but also sounding like something palatable that some, so people can still 
still recognise what the tune is. Great challenge. Yeah, wow. it was good fun. So in terms of the actual process of writing for an advert or documentary or a film, do you get sent them with them in silence, like without any music, and then you have to watch it and decide what music to write, or is there any music already there? It depends on the on the project. So the thing I've done most most of is feature documentaries. They're, they're documentaries, but they are an hour and a half long, and they're meant for the cinema, so they're quite long-form projects. So often I will be sent clips of, of footage that they that they have, and often they, they've used uh, some library music to, to temp. It's called the temp score. It's, it's one of these controversial subjects. A lot of composers hate that. A lot find it useful. I, I, think, I think it's a really useful tool to, to get rid of a lot of back and forth quite early on. So it gives you an idea of what the, the directors, producers uh, are after. But I watch that once and then I mute it and try and forget about it. But it's obviously got in somehow. Subconsciously, yes. you don't want to copy it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of one, one part of it. But often the way I, I'm writing is off just what's on the paper. So either a script or um, a brief with a set of different themes that they know the film's going to explore. You have to sort of trust your instinct at that early stage and run with whatever idea you have and then chip away at it. So yeah, the process is coming up with some uh, initial ideas to then send back to the director and then then it then it starts. The hardest bit is starting the the dialogue, isn't it? And then once you've once you've had a few ideas back and forth, it can it goes from there really. And for anyone listening, any young composers who maybe just finished their degrees at music college, who would be interested in getting into this kind of line of work, do you have any um, tips for how they could go about doing that? It's, it's a tricky one because I still feel in the same boat in a way. So I'm definitely not speaking from any kind of expert position. But what I did when I came out of college was pursue concert music for a few years really and that's not the normal route obviously for a film composer but I think it allows me to come back into film composition with with some extra tools a much wider array of sounds that I can use because really it's about having something individual that you can add to something so I would say you don't have to go straight into the film composition route try and just develop your own music first Mm. What a mistake that I made, I think, and lots of composers make, is trying to do, trying to be really versatile and doing a bit of everything. And in some ways, that's that's useful, but then it's really it's really important as well to do your thing really really well and and work out what what your strengths are. Work on your own sound, but also you know the, the classic thing of meeting as many people as you can. A lot of the work that I've got has been through just a couple of. Well, I did a kind of evening course at Faber Media Music and that was how I met a lot of the directors and editors that I first started working with and then once you've got one thing it kind of goes from there. And did you have to pay to do that? Did you pay yourself? Uh, Yes, so that was, um, unfortunately I don't think they run it anymore. It was a kind of 10 week course in writing for documentaries or something. Uh, You had had to pay to do it but you got you got to meet every week a different industry professional would come in and you could and you they'd set you a task so it was a really good way of meeting them but i think you know there's loads of really great forums because it's all about getting your first film something to put on your showreel right yeah. 
if you can get involved in a really high quality project, won't be paid at the beginning, but like a, a student project, it's really, really useful to meet students that are doing the same thing as you. And there's some really good forums like Shooting People. Yeah, obviously for filmmakers. And there's um, Mandy, Mandy Crew. You know, I applied for so many short films that people were looking for and, and it really, um, the amount that you don't get is, is huge, but it really only takes one or two to get something something on your show or something on your website that you can show to people. Competitions are a good one as well. So I first did, with concert music, I did the Lutoslavsky competition. We were talking about Polish music earlier. <laughs> You know, anything that you can do to sort of get your name out there is what it's all about, really. We, we haven't really talked about that much in this series about playing for free or doing work for free. Mm. Because it is definitely... That I noticed that there are two sides of it. But when you first leave music college and when you're at music college, I definitely did a lot of things that were yeah. free or for exposure. And I've, I've done lots of other projects, for, well, like we're doing this, with, for no money, just yeah. because we thought it was a good idea. But I was wondering what you thought about playing for free, Davina. Um, well, it sort of depends on the project. If you can look at a project and let's say it's for very little money or for free, but you can see it as a sort of investment in yourself, for example, meeting the right people, or it's a piece of repertoire that you've always wanted to learn, yes. maybe it is worthwhile doing. Have you ever heard of the three Ps? Taking taking a gig if it covers two of the three P's. I think it's... Payment. Pay. Pieces. People. Oh, that's so funny. Cause or pay potential. Maybe yeah. pay potential. Program. Um, and maybe program. I've heard because. the same thing, but with R's instead. How oh, there you that? go. Maybe like, it was R's. Remuneration, <laughs> um, repertoire, and whatever the other one was. But, but that was a good one to remember. Yeah. Potential. What could come out of it in future? Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. I suppose you can't do everything for free obviously because we need, all need to pay our rent and pay our bills and earn a living and everything but sometimes these opportunities do come up and you got to take them because you don't know where it will lead you in the future. Something like that swap regala I did recently mm. that was you know unpaid but no one who's involved in the entire project was paid and perhaps that made it a bit easier to to take to think actually every person here is doing it for free and because we want this to be a goer you know we want this to be mm. a success whereas sometimes you might do something for free knowing that actually some other people involved are not are, are being paid oh, yes yeah. and then and then like, that's all comfortable that's the silly thing isn't it when you go to a gig and and i i've definitely done these in the past where everyone has been paid different rates like they might have a different rate for professionals and a different rate for students and amateurs and it's like to the fixers you just think do you really think no one's going to talk to each yeah. other mind you even in the prof profession Lots of orchestras pay their members a different rate to freelancers, so oh, the, rate, the freelance yeah. rate is lower. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's also a bit of a sore spot. But but it's just the way that's it is. for um, gigs that are that have an MU lower threshold. Yes. But for example, let's say something that is put on by someone, hmm. you know, out of their own pocket. I guess for for composers, it's um, important to if if you do do something for free, which I think is important, it's important to let the person know that that you are kind of doing it for um, less than you would normally do it for because it, it can lead to uh, with composers I suppose because you're sort of setting your own rate I've had it with um, you then build a relationship with someone and then on their next project they 
they've because it's no one really knows what composers are paid you know filmmakers Mm. don't really it leads to them thinking that you should you'll be paid the same thing and and it's hard to to go from there and And, um, end up sort of undercutting what you might get well and that's the other thing within the community as well if you if you get something and it ends up being quite high profile and then other more established composers see you as Mm-hmm. as something someone who's done it for nothing or yeah. if everyone else is doing it for the for the love of it or to get a really good quality piece of work then it is for composers it's I don't see any other way of, of you know there's so many short films that are made that are made for for nothing and the actors aren't getting paid the um, DOP is not getting paid at everyone but they're there to make something for, it's it's the potential thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's something special. Something, yeah. yeah. But just to make this clear, we're talking about when when you first left music college, or you were a student starting out. I'm not saying that I think professionals should be doing no, no, it no. On, a, on a regular basis. But, but certainly, uh, yeah, everyone I know has done, done things for free because yeah. yeah. it's definitely worth it. And I want to ask, is there anywhere, um, like, a, are there MU guidelines or for composers pay? I'm just thinking, like... How we've talked about it in our, one of our first episodes this series about making sure you talk to your own instrument, players of your own instrument or voice to check that your fees are in line with each other's. Mm. Is how is there somewhere composers can go and check to make sure they're not undercutting? I think in the classical world there is an MU document. They I think they did some research two or three years ago as a survey but I think there's so many different um, there's so many different variables that come into it for composition you know is a five minute piano piece more work than a five minute choral piece it's so Mm. difficult to measure in that way that I think it's always going to be just a rough guideline that is the benefit I suppose of of having an agent eventually but even then I I feel like it's always always different for different projects yeah because I wanted to ask you about that so you're represented by SMA Talent so how did you go about getting an agent did they approach you or did you have to send them your stuff um yeah so they're a lovely agency so I met Leslie who works for SMA Talent when I was at Soundtrack Cologne film festival film music festival so there's some really great film music festivals on the continent there's actually one in Poland in Krakow um, they do a huge film music festival for a whole week, which is a good place to meet people. And But this one, Soundtrack Cologne, I had a short film that I'd scored that was being screened there in a in a competition. And I saw her afterwards and she'd seen the film. And so it was sort of one of those lucky coincidences, really. But I know that agents do get sent things all the time. I think once you start, once you get a couple of credits, then it's, it's time to sort of approach them. But on the other hand, there are plenty of composers that don't have agents. The best way of getting work is from people you've worked with before. That's mm-hmm. always the case. Because even if agents can put you forward for things, it's that personal connection is, is so important. And if mm-hmm. there's so many other people going for it, uh, you know, often you you send off your pitch and they're, because there's no personal connection, they don't you don't hear anything back at all. So it, um, it's definitely not a guaranteed way to, to get work. But it's, um, I suppose it's... A lot of it is about the management side of things. So having someone to, it's it's useful to be able to keep a creative relationship with filmmakers and yeah, rather than a kind of rather than having to talk about the the nuts and bolts of things. <laughs> it's the funny thing they don't tell you when you become a musician that you're also going to have to be a negotiator too. Yeah, sometimes. Yes. lots of different skills involved. <laughs> and I actually I was 
even just this week was booked for a, a church service something and it's a church that I've played at since I was studying at the academy and I was still charging the same fee and the guy actually said to me and emailed me and said oh is this still is this fee still okay and I sort of thought oh is is he asking me that because he thinks I should be charging more now or because he just didn't know and and I thought oh, actually yeah to be fair I I would normally charge a bit more than that now. Mm. So I got back to him and said, well, you know, we've obviously got such a good relationship, I, I wouldn't want a, t- a higher fee to compromise that. But actually, I, I would now charge a bit more. Um, but obviously, if that's, a, if that's a problem for you, then let me know kind of thing. And he got back to me straight away and said, yes, I completely agree. Uh, yeah. Increase in fee, it's, it's time, it's about time. And I thought, oh, oh I haven't done it. Why, not why I haven't done that sooner, because he initiated yeah. it but you think actually it's important I think people like to see that you know what you're worth mm. and definitely I've had this before when I've put my rates up for teaching and expecting a huge like blowback from the student's mum thinking oh no how am I going to prepare my arguments and stuff but then often it's it's fine and I had one student's mum say to me you've got to charge what you're worth yeah you know because otherwise you're going to end up resenting that job and you probably won't do the best performance perhaps we're going to have to move on but thank you so much to chris for being our interviewee this episode and thank you so much for all your work on our podcast mastering the levels and for writing our excellent jingle and if you want to check out more of chris's music i would highly recommend his friday 50 series where he posts a new piece of music completely unrelated to what he's been working on currently on facebook every friday We'll put a link to your website and people can find you through there as well. Now for our weird gig of the episode. Our weird gig was sent in by trumpeter Sam Ewens. Sam says, I once got booked to play trumpet at Barking Leisure Centre. It was myself and a trombonist and sax player making up a horn section. And apart from that, drums, keys and bass players formed the band. I had no idea what to expect, but upon arrival, we found out we'd be playing a short 20-second jingle to kick off a mini-show to open the new soft play area. Very strange, (laughs) but a quick and easy gig. You've gone already. (laughs) The show was to play twice, for an afternoon event for families, and in the evening for more of a champagne reception type event, where the Mayor of Barking would be in attendance. We were soon introduced to the Turner Prize nominated artist who had designed the soft play area and who was coordinating the performances. Her name was Marvin (laughs) Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Okay. Okay. She wore a lime green full body morph suit and her husband... (laughs) 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 And her husband... And her husband was also there wearing a full Chewbacca costume complete with head. He was holding their baby son. I never saw the husband's actual face the entire day. (laughs) So... The soft play area was like your average one, slides, a ball pool, netting, etc. Except, instead of being brightly coloured, it was all black and white. Us brass players were told we'd be playing from inside the structure, right at the top of the slide. We took our positions, played the short jingle, and then adult actors flooded the play area, dressed oddly and all behaving and acting like children. One came right up to us each time and pretended to fall over and yell out in a babyish voice, Ouch, I've hurt my knee! In between performances, whilst recovering from trying to hold in hysterics, 
we got chatting a little more and it turned out that Marvin Gaye wasn't her real name. Shock <laughs> <No> horror. <laughs> she changed it by deed poll because she'd become interested in his life. Nor was it her first name change. She'd previously been in charge of a drama group for a few days and felt that she needed more gravitas in her name. So she changed her name to Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> And if you Google this particular lady, her name is now Monster. No joke. Now for some upcoming concerts. The event that I was really interested by was sent to me by the Musicians' Union. They are hosting a Wikipedia edit-a-thon with the aim of adding more women composers to Wikipedia's database. Now, it is this Sunday, the 2nd of September, from 10am to 5pm at the Royal Festival Hall on London's South Bank. And did you know that only 17% of Wikipedia's entries about people are about women? And only 10% of Wikipedia's contributing editors are women. Now, creating a Wikipedia entry is a simple and effective way to raise a composer's profile. And I'll put a link to the event in our show notes. Also coming up is a screening of Children of the Snowland with music by our very own Chris Rowe. It is being shown at the I Will Tell Film Festival in Leytonstone. And that is also this Sunday, the 2nd of September at 2pm. And the film is about the Snowland School in Kathmandu, Nepal. And it shows children who leave for boarding school age 7 to return to their families age 18 and it's their interaction with their families when they return and it features Jenny Hogan on Bansuri flute and myself on harp in a soundtrack (laughs) (laughs) the multi-story orchestra have some concerts coming up next week the program is Schumann's second symphony and the orchestra is doing their stand-up thing performing in a car park so if you've been to these concerts before you'll know that they're super casual even the musicians are just wearing casual clothes. The overground train races past during the performance and there's a bar on the top floor. What also makes these performances special are the living program notes before the show. The orchestra splits up into smaller groups spread out amongst the car park and they play short excerpts to the wandering audience in a sort of mini presentation. So it can be useful if you don't know anything about the piece and when the audience then go in for the show, they have a new kind of insight as to what they're about to hear. So that's happening the 5th of September in the West Handyside Canopy Kings Cross, 7pm, 6th and 7th at Bold Tendencies Peckham Multi-Story Car Park at 7pm on both those nights. Really good views. The toilets are not very nice up there. Uh, it's like saying my brother actually installed those toilets. Really? When what? he When he worked for the company Pootopia. They're super smelly. <laughs> giving a shit since 2005. Right. They're, um, they're, they're eco, eco. They're eco-friendly. They really smell. They're quite clever, but they do smell. They really do smell. So just prepare yourself Don't let that put you off, though. Um, and the 8th of September, if you're up north, um, they're performing in the Flemingate Multi-Story Car Park at 5pm up in Beverley. So do check those out. As this podcast has been a brand new venture for all of us, we're learning as we go. So we'd love to hear any feedback from our listeners ahead of our next series. Are there any topics you'd like us to cover? Are there any people you'd like us to interview? Any new segments you think we could add? Or any general ways in which we can improve? Contact us via musiciansweekend at gmail.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thanks to Chris Rowe, who's Yay! right here, for our awesome jingle, and to all our special guests we've had on the podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and indeed our first series. It's been a pleasure to bring you these 10 episodes and stay tuned for series two. Until next time. Bye. bye.